All right. Now, let's go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Our journey of, through the John, God, uh, well, the Gospel of John brings us to the 19th chapter this morning. John 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Several years ago, I had to have my septic system worked on. So uh, the fellow that came and dug up my backyard, dug up the septic system, was telling me about a similar issue. He had another fellow's home where he had to go dig up his septic system. And, and it's always exciting when you have heavy equipment in your backyard, you know, backhoe and all that. And so the homeowner and his little boy came out to watch. Now, the little boy had never seen anything like this, so he loved the backhoe. That was exciting until the guy started digging up raw sewage. It's a septic system. The little boy had never seen raw sewage, let alone smell it. So the, guy, the little kid's just kind of grossed out, and finally he asked the workman, Mister, why would you do this? And the workman told him, said, Because your daddy's going to give me a lot of money. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Why would you... Do this. That question is going to help us this morning, so I want you to hang on to it. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. Why would you do this? So let's look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 19, uh, John is going to tell us about Jesus being crucified, and none of the gospel writers give us all the details. We get the best picture, we get the most complete picture of the crucifixion when we build a composite, when we take Everything that the four gospel writers tell us, put it all together, that's the, that's the fullest picture we get. So we're going to primarily limit ourselves to John. We'll pull in a little bit of that extra information from the other gospel writers as we go along. But let's consider, first of all, the crucified Christ. The crucified Christ. And I want you to see first that they scourged him. In verse 1, John says, I mean, he just understates it. He, this, this is the understatement of all understatements. They took Jesus and scourged him. Scourging was called the halfway death. And the way the Romans would do it, the victim would be stripped naked and tied down or stretched out vertically, and then he would be whipped with a flagellum. And the end, the ends of the whip would be embedded pieces of stone or metal. And the net effect would be that the victim would be flayed. The skin would just be flayed to the bone, internal organs would be exposed. And many men died just from scourging alone. Now the Jews, they would limit themselves to 39 lashes based on God's word. So they would limit themselves to 39 lashes. The Romans had no such limitations. So many times they would scourge a man to death. They took Jesus out and they scourged him. And then I also want you to see they mocked him in verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him and began to say, Hail, King of the Jews. So this is a mockery. If you're the King of the Jews, well, you don't look like a king. We need to help you out a little bit. Purple is the color of royalty or majesty. So they put this robe on him, a purple robe, mocking his claim to be king or the title that has been given to him, King of the Jews. And then a king needs a scepter, so they give him a reed or a staff as a fake scepter. 
And then they fashion him a crown. King's got to have a crown. So they make him a crown of thorns and beat it into his brow with that reed, with that scepter. And they beat it into his brow. And they begin to kneel in front of him saying, Oh, hell, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. So the soldiers here, they're mocking Jesus. <laughs> you don't look much like a king. They're also mocking the Jews. And they probably despise the Jews. And so they're mocking the Jews. Yeah, this is a, Jew. this is a king fitting for the Jews. This is kind of the, the king that they deserve. Now, you know, last week we talked about irony. Oh, the irony. And how chapter 18 is just dripping with irony. This is ironic as well. Here these soldiers are mocking Jesus as a king when he is the king. And, oh, you're the king of the Jews. Well, actually, he is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah, that Davidic king that God promised in the Old Testament. He is the king of the Jews. Not only that, he's their king as well. And here's the irony. One day these same soldiers will kneel before Jesus again. Here they knelt before him in mockery, but one day they'll kneel before him in acknowledgement and confession that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the irony of it. Well, they mock him, and then they beat him. They beat him. In verse 3, they began to give him slaps in the face. The other gospel writers also add they beat him with the staff, that fake scepter. They also beat him with their fists. They beat him beyond recognition. Isaiah 52 says that his appearance was, was marred more than any other man, that he was, he was beaten beyond recognition. He is battered and bruised, so he is beaten. And then they crucified him. So they scourged him, they mocked him, they beat him, and they crucified him. So let's keep reading. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so hang on. Here we go. Verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. By the way, that's the hour they, they would start slaughtering lambs for the Passover. Paul calls Jesus our Passover, Christ our Passover. He's the Passover lamb of God. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. 
Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Let's stop there. When John tells us about the crucifixion, he doesn't go into all the gory details of a crucifixion. Actually, none of the gospel writers do. And one reason is they didn't have to. All of their first century readers understood crucifixion. They had seen crucifixions. They had seen the crosses. They had seen the bodies hung on the crosses. They, they knew full well what a crucifixion looked like and sounded like. They were aware. If you all remember about 18 years ago or so, uh, Mel Gibson put out The Passion of the Christ. Y'all remember that show, that movie? The Passion of the Christ. Now, there's some weird stuff in that movie that's not in the Bible. But that movie got an R rating because of the violence of the Passion of the Christ. Just the gruesome, the brutality of it, the, the violence, it carried an R rating. And Gibson, probably more than anyone has, caught, caught the brutality of it on film. Have you ever heard of T.W. Hunt? T.W. Hunt was a seminary professor and a writer and a speaker. He's going to be with the Lord since. But uh, he wrote some strong, strong stuff back in the day. The, uh, the Disciples' Prayer Life, The Mind of Christ, things like this. Good stuff. His, his material was strong. But now I will say, I've, I've heard him speak more than once. And he's not a very dynamic speaker. Of course, neither am I. Who am I to speak? But uh, he's... He was not dynamic. He was very soft-spoken, almost monotone, just uh, hard to listen to. But I was, in a, I was in a worship setting where he was speaking. I think it might have been a Mind of Christ conference, but he was speaking. And T.W. Hunt went through the, phy- the physiological effects of a crucifixion. He just went through it. Here's what happens when you crucify a human body. And here's what Jesus would have experienced. And he just went through it. Again, not sensational, not dramatic, not emotional. I mean, it's almost like he tried to be boring. (laughs) He just went through it step by step. Here's what happens. And he went through it. And when he got done, there was a holy hush on the room for a long time. Nobody moved. Nobody got up to pray. Nobody got up to sing. Nobody got up to go to the bathroom. Nobody got up to leave early. I mean, the only, the only thing you could hear was sniffles, people crying. That's what they did to Jesus. Now, let's go back to our question. Why would you do this? Why would they do this to Jesus of Nazareth? Well, because they hated him. They hated him. The chief priests, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they hated Jesus. One, they were afraid of him. They were envious of him. They were jealous of his popularity. At one point, they say, the whole world's going out to him. (laughs) So they were jealous of his popularity. They hated him for calling out their hypocrisy. He knew what they were, and he called them out on it. He announced what they were. They are hypocrites of the first order. They were also afraid that Jesus and his followers might trigger a response from Rome against the Jews. And that means that they could lose the good thing they got going. 
They have prestige, they have power, and they have money. Within their little world and their little society, they've, they've got it pretty good, and Jesus is a threat to all of it. So they hated him. Pilate, Pilate knows he's innocent. We hear that in chapter 19. Pilate made efforts to release him. He knows, but he's a self-serving politician, and he too is afraid. And, and the Jews, they played him. I mean, they just played him like a fiddle. Well, if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar, and anyone who opposes, makes himself king is no friend of Caesar. So Pilate is afraid, man, they're going to go over my head, and the last thing I want is to get in trouble with the upper-ups. If I get in trouble with Caesar, I could lose my job or more. <laughs> it, could go, it could go real bad. So he, he, he handed Jesus over. The Roman soldiers who did this to him, who beat him and mocked him and scourged him and then nailed him to a cross, there's no reason for them to hate Jesus. I mean, he, he never did anything to the Romans, let alone these Roman soldiers. I, why would they do this? Maybe they're just sadistic. Maybe they're just hardened with war. Maybe they hate the Jews this much. But why would they do this? The crowds. Why is the crowd so bloodthirsty to cry out, crucify him, crucify him? The other gospel writers tell us that pretty well everybody there is hurling insults at Jesus. Save the Marys. We'll get to that here in a moment. His mother and Mary and Mary and then John the disciple. They're there. Other than them, it sounds like everybody there is hurling insults at Jesus. The Roman soldiers are insulting him, hurling insults. The religious leaders are hurling insults. The crowd is in, hurling insults. Passers-by. Even the two thieves crucified beside him at one point are hurling insults at Jesus. Dude, don't you have enough of your own problems? <laughs> you know, stay in your lane. And yet everyone is hurling it. Why? What did Jesus ever do to any of these people? One writer said it this way, what we see is a total rejection by depraved humanity. A total rejection by depraved humanity. What we have is human depravity on display. That's the only explanation. This is the insanity of human depravity. Well, that's a good sermon title. That's a whole other sermon for another day. The insanity of human depravity. This inexplicable hatred and violence toward Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who never hurt anyone, who preached the truth of God and the love of God, and yet look at what they did to him. Why would you do this? Why would you do this? John tells us in John 1, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Or in John chapter 3, when Jesus said, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his evil deeds will be exposed. Well, there's the crucified Christ. Now I want you to consider the Father's plan. Let's keep reading. The Father's plan. So we'll pick up in verse 23, and let's just go on down to the end of the chapter. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. So Jesus is entrusting the care of Mary, his mother, to John the disciple. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of the preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. All right, we'll stop there for today. Notice the Father's plan. This is the Father's plan. This is the Father's cup. This is the Father's cup. You remember John told us when Jesus was arrested, Peter chopped off Malchus's ear, the slave's ear, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is the cup that the Father has given the Son, or the assignment. This is the job, the mission that the Father has given the Son. Notice also we have the Scriptures fulfilled. Again, this is the Father's plan. The Scriptures are fulfilled. We hear it four times in verse 24. Uh, to fulfill the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they ca cast lots. We heard it again in verse 28, uh, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. And then in verse 36, these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And verse 37, another scripture, they shall they'll look on him whom they pierce. It's a fulfillment of scripture, which is to say God saw it, God planned it, God did it. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. Look in verse 30. In verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What's finished? God's plan. The work of redemption. It is finished. This is the Father's plan of redemption. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ did not catch God by surprise. It's not a mistake. It wasn't a miscalculation. This is the plan of God. He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. In Acts chapter 2, Peter will get up and preach at Pentecost, and he'll say this in Acts 2.23, This man, talking about Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. <laughs> so, the, so the Jews got the Romans to nail him to a cross... 
But folks, it was according to the predetermined plan of God and the foreknowledge of God. This is the Father's plan. God planned it. Now let's go back to our question. Why would you do this? Why would God plan this? He loves the Son. Why would God send His Son to be treated this way? To be tortured and murdered in this fashion? Why would God do this? Well, you know the answer. For God so loved the world. His amazing love. For God thus loved. Here's how God loved the world. He loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God commendeth his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our gospel writer We'll say later in 1 John chapter 4, he'll say this, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation there, that's a mouthful. That means satisfaction. It is the satisfaction of God's wrath and God's justice with respect to our sin. It is the atoning sacrifice. Why would God do this with his own son, God the Son? Because he loves us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us, you and me both. We have sinned against God. We've broken God's laws. Our sins bring with it a death sentence. The wages of sin is death. We are condemned to an eternity apart from God. This is the law of God. The righteous justice of God demands it. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But God loves us. And God wanted to make a way whereby you and I could be forgiven and saved and reconciled to him and spend eternity with him. How in the world can that happen? We're sinners and God can't have anything to do with sin. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He died in our place. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ died for our sins, satisfying the justice and the wrath of God with respect to our sins. And now you and I can be forgiven and justified and reconciled to God. Why would God do this? Because he loved us. That's why. God commendeth his own love toward us. Well, that brings us to the son's sacrifice. The Jews and the Romans did this. The father planned it. The son allowed it. Jesus allowed them to do this to him. He didn't stop it. He didn't prevent it. He willingly submitted himself to this torture and this kind of a death. He allowed it. Now, he could have stopped it at any time. He could have used his power to stop it. We've already seen in the Gospel of John, let alone the other Gospels, that Jesus could heal the sick. He could raise the dead. He could calm the seas. We saw in John chapter 1 at the very beginning of the book, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He has the power to create with his word. 
All he had to do at any given point when they were mocking him, when they were beating him, when they were scourging him, when they were nailing him to a cross, all he had to do was say, enough. That's it. Stop. He didn't do that. He didn't use his power. He could have used his angels. We saw that last week. Matthew tells us that when when they arrested Jesus and Peter cut off the slave's ear, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Peter, don't you know, I could ask the Father and he could send 12 legions of angels. We talked about that last Sunday. 75, 80,000 angels could be here. All I have to do is say the word. He didn't say the word. He didn't do that. Low-hanging fruit. Just the easiest thing he could have done. Use Pilate. He could have just used Pilate. Pilate's the man in charge. Pilate wants to let him go. Pilate made efforts to release him. We read that. Pilate knows he's innocent. Jesus could have used Pilate. <laughs> he could have pled his case. He could have begged for his life. He could have encouraged Pilate. Pilate, you're the man. You've got the authority. Do the right thing. Man up. <laughs> he could have encouraged Pilate. He didn't even do anything to help his case with Pilate. He answered him not a word until Pilate said, Don't you, have, don't you know i got authority? You don't have any authority unless it came from the Father above. Jesus didn't do any of those things. He allowed this. He allowed them to do this to him. He laid down his life. He laid down his life. We hear this in John chapter 10. No one has taken it from me. Talking about his life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus laid down his life. We hear it in our text. He gave up his spirit. In verse 30, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He said, it is finished. By the way, we preach and teach the finished work of Christ. It is finished. Jesus did everything that needed to be done on the cross. He finished it. And for you to add anything to the cross is an insult to the cross. Well, Jesus died on the cross for me, and now I need to do my part. No, you don't have a part. <laughs> you just receive the gospel and believe on him. You repent and believe. You don't have a part. You don't have a contribution to make. Jesus finished it. He did everything that needed to be done. It is finished. And then look, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Literally handed over. He handed over his spirit. And that verb speaks of a, a, willing, a, a willing, voluntary act. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Well, there you go. Even his death was in his control. He's been in control this whole time. And even his last breath is under his control. He bowed his head and he handed over his spirit and committed it into the Father's hands. Jesus allowed this. Now let's go back to our question. Why would you do this? Why would Jesus do this? I mean, if you can imagine the passion of the Christ or these details, all that's just so understated here, why would Jesus do this? Well, two reasons. One, because he loved and obeyed the Father. He loved and obeyed the Father. Jesus said in John 15, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus loved the Father. He obeyed the Father. This is the cup. The Father gave the Son. The cup. You remember Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, all things are possible for you. If it be possible, let this cup pass for me. It wasn't possible. If it be thy will, let this cup pass for me. It wasn't his will. This is the assignment. This is the mission. 
This is the reason he came. He loved the Father and obeyed the Father. Here's another reason, because he loved us and died for us. He loved us and died for us. Why would Jesus do this voluntarily? He loved us and he died for us. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He loved us and gave himself up for us. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. Galatians 1, 4, he gave himself up for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Why would you do this? Because he loves you. He died for you. Because he wants to save you. He wants you to be forgiven, saved, reconciled to God, and spend eternity with him. That's why. Now, let me show you one more thing. Go back to verse 14. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Pilate brings Jesus out, and he says to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold your king. Now, Pilate is mocking the Jews. And he resents the Jews for making him do this, the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the chief priests, all these guys. He he resents them for making him do this. He knows this is wrong. He knows Jesus is innocent. I find no fault with this man. I find no guilt in him. Well, behold your king. Look what you made me do. Behold your king. So he's mocking the Jews. Again, the irony is he is their king. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Behold your king. But now I want you to, I want you to think about that for, for a moment this morning. You look at the cross of Christ. They scourged him. They beat him. They mocked him. They crucified him. Behold your king. Your king did this for you. He allowed it. He submitted to it. He subjected himself to this treatment. For you, behold your king. To hear some preachers preach today, you get the idea that the Christian life is all about you. And the Christian life is all about God helping you live your best life now. That's why Jesus is here. He just wants to help. He's just here to help you. He wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy, just like you want to be happy and healthy and wealthy. So he's here to help you succeed any way he can. Bless your heart. He just wants you to have all that you want to have and be all that you can be. So he's here to help you. But you know what? You go to read the Bible and you listen seriously to the teachings of Christ and you read the rest of the New Testament and you find out the Christian life is about everyone but you. (laughs) It's not about you. As much as we want it to be about us, it's not about us. The Christian life is about him. The Christian life is actually a life of self-denial. Self-sacrifice, not self-fulfillment, but self-sacrifice, dying to self. It is about living for the Lord instead of living for yourself. It is loving your neighbor as yourself. It is, it is considering one another as more important than yourself. It is a life of saying no to self. And this is what Jesus said in, you know, in the invitation. Anyone wants to come after me? You want to follow me? You want to be one of my people? You want to be a Christian? All right, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself. You start there. You deny to self. Die to self. You say no to self. Take up your cross. This is a cross. John 19. Your cross is not your bad back or a nagging spouse or an unfair boss. The cross is an instrument of humiliation and death. You deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. 
To follow him is to keep his commandments, to adhere to his teachings, to do what he said do the way he said do it. That's what it means to follow after Christ. That's being a Christian. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Do life my way for me. And you start by denying yourself. Let's go back to our question. Why would you do this? Why would you live that way? Again, we can be honest. We're in church. We can, let's keep it real. <laughs> we all want it to be about us. I want it to be about me as much as it can be about me. Why would you live a life of self-denial where it's not about you anymore? Why would you want to die to yourself? Consider one another more important than yourself. Why would you, why, why would you preach the gospel to every creature? Don't you know that's a good way to get in trouble? Good way to get laughed at, mocked, fired, or worse. You could get persecuted. You could get killed in some places. Why would, why would you do that? Why would you make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's messy. Oh, man, messy. You, you start getting in somebody else's life and try to teach them to observe all the things that he has taught and, and to, to follow after Christ. And, man, that's messy. It's, it's relational. It's a commitment. Why would you serve in your church? You don't want to be tied down with that stuff. I mean, you, if you teach Sunday school, you're supposed to be there every Sunday. Who thought? Are you working a Wanda every Wednesday night or work with teenagers? Teenagers, man, they're something. Why, why, why in the world would you ever do that? Why would you give money to that church? You know, times are tight, money's short. Why would you give money to the church? Why would you serve? Why would you give? Why would you sacrifice? Why would you live life his way? He's all the time asking us to do stuff that we don't really want to do, and it's hard stuff. Why would you do this? Well, I'll give you two reasons. One, because he's king. Behold, your king. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Behold, your king. Two words that never belong together. No, Lord. It's, it's a contradiction in terms. No, it's yes, Lord. You don't say no to your king. You say yes, O king. Yes, Lord. Why would you give? Why would you go? Why would you serve? Why would you sacrifice? Why would you share? Why would you do all these things? Why would you deny yourself? Take up your cross. Follow him because he's your king. All authority has been given him in heaven and on earth. Here's another reason. Because of what he gave for you. Why, why, why would you do all those things? Why would you deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, follow his teachings, give and go and serve and sacrifice and share and take risks? And Why, why would you do all that? Because he loved me and gave himself up for me. He died for me. How can I not go and give and serve and love and forgive or sacrifice or teach or whatever else? How can I not? I've been bought with a price. Look what he did for me. One of my favorite Bible verses is Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Remember, you died as yourself. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's dying to self. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul never got used to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth would die for Saul of Tarsus. That Jesus loved Saul and died for Saul. <laughs> it's no longer I who live, but Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 
Paul would say the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Sometimes we sing the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, written by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, I mean, if you could give me the whole world, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Behold your king. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you for John 19. We thank you for the cross. Lord, I pray that you'd seal this message to our hearts. I pray that the one who has never been saved, Lord, help them to see that they are lost without hope, without God in the world, that they are condemned in their sins, headed toward a devil's hell for all eternity, that they must be born again. And Lord, help them to see your love displayed on the cross. Lord, bring them to the, to the cross this morning. May today be the day of salvation. And now the time for that one to say, yes, Lord, yes, Jesus, save me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That they might repent and believe and receive by faith the gift of eternal life. And Father, for those of us who do know you and claim you and call ourselves Christians, thank you for just this reminder of who you are and what you did. And what we owe. Take charge of this time of decision. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.